When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello out there. Yes, hello again, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. Flynn, so we were going to start the show first with the potential tour announcement, <laughs> then with the show you saw on Monday, but <laughs> now there is much bigger news as we re-record this. Is it that Mr. much bigger? <laughs> it's pretty big. Mr. Springsteen has sold his publishing and his master's for some reported in excess of $500 million. And <laughs> it's a big story. Him. It was on the front page of the New York Times. It's been covered everywhere. And as you just said, good for him. Congratulations. But let's talk about it a little here because I, I think it's a subject with a lot of fascination around it. I just think there are a lot of question marks. Basically, how does it affect future releases? I mean, does it affect the monthly Nugs releases? Does it affect any possible box sets or, or new albums coming up? That's, I mean, those are the questions that, that I care about. I really don't give a crap if he uses the Rising to sell cell phones. I really don't. We'll come back to that. I really don't believe that's going to happen. To answer your questions, of course, we don't know, but I think we can take a pretty good guess that for the fans, really business is going to be as usual, and and there's going to be no difference. The nugs will come That's out. Anything that Bruce was already going to put out is going to be put out, and maybe in the long run, we actually get a little bit more because, needless to say, if you pay $500 million, you're going to want to get a return on your investment. <laughs> but the, the the thing here is the money is really in the use of the placements, whether it's film and TV, and certainly, as you just mentioned, commercials. Now, I, I really don't think we're going to see come on up for Verizon. <laughs> I well, know that's I, a popular I, one. I know. I, I don't either. I'm just, that seems to be one of the big fears that I, that people keep talking about online and, yeah, I, I imagine there has to be some kind of some kind of clause in there that that would give Bruce the right to say, no, you're not going to use the rising to sell erectile dysfunction drugs. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about that, because, again, if you're paying five hundred million dollars, how how much compromise are you going to allow in terms of not allowing what you just bought to be utilized? But but I think a more important point is, and Bruce released a statement today, and, and a big part of the statement was that he's been with Sony for 50 years and the trust that they have for each other. That's a very important point. And I think that these are people who all have a mutual respect for one another and certainly an understanding of the type of way that Bruce has conducted himself I don't think that Sony's going to be running out to sell a hundred ads. First of all, it's going to devalue their asset in a way because really, probably what they're going to be looking to do is make a big splash. You know, if you go back even to to the '80s with the Chrysler uh, offer and and all that from Lee Iacocca, 
here, maybe Ford comes forward with like a $50 million deal or something like that to use Bruce's music. I, I really don't think you're, it's just going to suddenly be in commercials all over the place. I, I think it'll be more targeted and they'll be more selective, not only out of respect for his material, but also because that's probably going to be what's best for their managing of this asset. If they went very uh, aggressive with that and you, all of a sudden you, we did start hearing Bruce on all these ads, it, I can see where that would lose a lot of value. It just wouldn't be as special anymore. And that's what makes that's what Bruce's music is special. And to make it commonplace would not be that would not do anybody any good, especially Sony. Yeah, there there were people and there was <laughs> we get it. We nobody feels more passionate about Bruce than we do. There's people who feel as passionately, but I don't think there's anyone who feels more passionately about his music than we do. That's why we do this podcast. And people were there were certain people today who were very upset and I think just the message, knowing what I what I know about these types of deals, just show some patience and and see how it plays out. I don't think you're going to be seeing Bruce on every channel. Every time you turn the channel, there's another commercial with a Springsteen song and and hemorrhoids and 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 coffee and and this and that and the other thing. Any crazy thing you can come up with, I, I just don't really believe that's going to happen. And maybe I'll be proven wrong in the long run. But let's see. Well, as I said, it. I don't. I really don't care if it's if his music is is used in commercials. I, it's not going to change my affinity, my passion for the music. I'm just I'm just concerned about whether it would uh, affect any releases. And it doesn't sound like right now that's uh, that's going to happen. That would be my best guess. Certainly, again, you're buying an asset. <laughs> The music releases are a big part of that asset. They're certainly not going to suddenly stop releasing Bruce Springsteen material. That that would make no sense. So right, but are we going to get unre unreleased stuff? I mean, that's that's the big question. Nobody knows the terms of the deal. I would guess that it certainly contains all of the outtakes from his major known work. I'd be very surprised if the Fifty Born in the USA outtakes aren't part of the deal. That we haven't heard yet. Certainly anything that is released is, is part of the deal. Oh, yeah, that, of course. So A Gun in Every Home and, and all those songs that we hope to hear one day. If anything, I would tilt towards believing this maybe slightly helps us in the sense that it's more likely that that stuff will be released. But I believe that it was going to be released anyway, because it's been pretty clear for the last number of years that Bruce is working through clearing the vaults. That is definitely true, but... We know there's still stuff in there, and um, we just, yeah, we want to hear it as soon as possible. And if the Sony deal gets us gets us there, hey, I'm I'm all for it. The other thing is, people were so caught up in the dollar amount, and and the only thing, and we're not going to talk about this because this is not a legal show. Although I do have a little perspective on this stuff, the it's all estate planning. It, it, his catalog is a major asset that, when he passes, would have been valued by the IRS. His heirs would owe a tremendous amount of money in a lump sum payment under estate taxes, although I'm sure they're doing everything they can to minimize that. And, and this just makes it easier. And if you look at some of the other cases that are out there that we've seen, very high profile cases, it's different than Prince because Prince died without a will. We certainly know Bruce has the best legal minds working with him that you can have. 
but Tom Petty, who I do believe had a will, he's had a lot of controversy because he had a second wife and he had his children. This just makes everything easier. He, he's getting uh, uh, he's getting bought out. He's going to be able to set up everything the way he wants with his expert planners while he's alive. And it, I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, good for him. Again, as we open the show, congratulations. And he worked really, really, really hard from nothing to get this. And I don't see how you could be anything other than happy for him. No, I'm, I'm definitely happy for him. It's good for him. He worked his ass off for all those years. I mean, especially in the 70s, going through the lawsuit and torturing his way in the studio. He, this is his big payday. And God bless him. There was one last thing on this. People bringing up the lawsuit from the 70s. Well, why did he fight in the 70s just to sell now? Well, the difference is in the 70s, <laughs> he got rocked. He signed a completely ridiculous contract on the hood of a car, which he didn't understand. And then one day he was told, you're being completely ripped off. This is a case where he has complete control of his work. He has a complete understanding of what's happening. He's been represented in the best way possible, I'm sure. And it's his choice to do what he wants. And, and that's why he did get the songs back in 1978, because he fought for this moment, because he knew one day he believed in himself that his catalog was going to be worth a lot of money and it had been stolen from him. Well, I don't know if he thought it'd be worth a lot of money someday, but he certainly just wanted the control over his music. It was it was his music. He wanted to do what he wanted. And that contract didn't did not give him that control. So he fought. That's true. That that's probably a better way. I mean, it's all tied up together because, of course, even in the 70s and, and he spoke about this many times in the book and wherever he had no money when he should have had money. And, and the reason why he had no money was because he was being ripped off even when Born to Run took off and started to be a success. And as we know, in 76 and 77, as, as we talked about, they could barely live. They, they had like no money. So this is just, again, it's, it's a wonderful thing and, and, and good for him. <laughs> that's the, uh, I think that's the end sentiment. It's just good for him. <laughs> you go, Bruce. Get what's yours and and go on. Yeah. And it's not for to anyone else. To, <laughs> people can have their opinions, but ultimately it's his work <laughs> for him to do with what he wants. And he has done it. So exactly. exactly. Now let's move on to his performance, which you were at Monday night at the John Henry benefit with Steve Earle. G give the audience a sense of <laughs> what you felt and saw that night. Well, um, I was expecting another acoustic performance. I think you had told me that in the history of, of this of the show, of, this, of these benefits, that the performers do like five or six songs each. And I was expecting acoustic, and that didn't change much when uh, when the first three acts on, on the stage were just were acoustic. The Mastersons, who did a three-song set, they're also members of the Dukes. They were really good, and... They had a, a former student from the Caswell School was there. He played a couple songs on piano. And then Roseanne Cash and her husband, John Leventhal, came out and they did three songs, in, including Long Black Veil, which was just amazing. So I was expecting acoustic, but then the, the Dukes came out, they took their places, and Bruce came out with the electric guitar and counted in the darkness. And it was probably the most powerful darkness I have seen in a long, long time. And hit me hard and it was a very very cathartic uh, feeling when uh, during that song it's something that a 
getting through this darkness on the edge of town is something we've all been kind of living for the last, well, nearly two years now. And it was it was tremendous to hear him to hear him sing it. It was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the East Street band, but they're a top notch band and they just nailed it. Oh, yeah. The Dukes are for real. Yes, they are. And then then Promised Land also good. It's but that one's a little different. I feel like uh, that song always needs a saxophone in there. And uh, he's done it. Bruce has done it with Grushecki's House Rockers a bunch of times and have the same feeling every time. There's just that there's something missing. But uh, but the sentiment was certainly uh, certainly there. And the audience was ready and when blow, you know, blow away the dreams that leave you brokenhearted. It was it was something special. And then, of course, that was followed up by Glory Days, the first time I believe that's been played since 2016. <laughs> Maybe it was played. It wasn't played when I was in Australia, but I, I, we'd have to check. But it's, it's been a, a number of years since he played Glory Days and, and the crowd seemed ready for it. <laughs> yes, they were. The the first verse, as I'm sure everybody has seen on, on YouTube videos, that uh, the first verse was sung by the crowd in the in hungry heart fashion, and I got the feeling that they weren't that the band that even Bruce wasn't really ready for that, but they went with it and they had a smiles all around, and that was that was another fun. That was just a fun one. That was kind of a different kind of kind of catharsis, <laughs> just the fun, the ex- exuberance there, and then uh, followed it up with uh, with Pink Cadillac and. Again, I got to say that that it was missing uh, either a saxophone and or a harmonica. Uh, usually when Bruce does that with the House Rockers at, at the Light of Day shows, Danny Clinch provides the harmonica. And then they needed something like that here. But with Steve Earl also adding some some bluesy guitar licks, it was the lack of saxophone and harmonica is very, very trivial on my part. And it just it rocked. It just it just rocked. Well, I'm sorry I was not there for that. I would love to see Bruce doing some music with an electric guitar in his hand, but I I think that that is going to come soon, hopefully real soon, but we'll see how things go with COVID. (laughs) Yeah, that seems to be the, uh, the situation, but it sounds like other people are touring other, other tours have been announced and it's just time for, for Bruce to, to make his announcement, even though this new variant is, even though these uh, this new variant seems to be uh, wreaking havoc on all the numbers. Now, we know a lot of people have seen the Frankfurt poster. There was a poster put up in Frankfurt for a show June 10th at the stadium there. And that is, as we understand it, a real poster for a real ad campaign <laughs> that um, they unfortunately got a little screwed up because they were going to make an announcement on November 29th. And at the last minute, they decided not to because Omicron had hit and... Unfortunately, there's a million moving pieces when these announcements are made. And apparently there were a couple of cases in Germany where stuff slipped out, even though the announcement had been canceled. There was the poster in Frankfurt all over town and public transportation spots. And also Eventim, the ticketing agency in Germany, had tweeted out the morning of the announcement or the supposed announcement that Bruce was coming to Germany for three shows and the tickets were going to start going on sale that Friday, which would have been December 3rd. And and then they pulled that down. <laughs> so we we wait for so the official word. So close. Yeah. So I mean, close, that's, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel pretty strongly that with outdoor shows, it's they're going to go off as planned unless something unforeseen happens. I mean, we've been having crowded stadiums every Saturday and Sunday throughout the throughout North America. And 
we had ba- you know full baseball stadiums going back to to May or so. So yeah, you know how many you know how many events I've been to this year, and I know you you've been to what you've been to what thirty baseball games, and I, I and, went to yeah that sounds about right, and I've been to a number of concerts now. I just saw Lindsey Buckingham in a theater last week, so events are happening. And the fact that these uh, that Bruce's concerts will most likely be outdoors, at least for on this on the first leg, that certainly adds an element of, of safety as well. Yeah, uh, the first and second leg, because as I think we've heard from quite a number of people now, there's the tour is going to open in Europe in stadiums, and then as they always do when they leave Europe, there will be stadium shows in the United States. After that, it sounds a, a little murky and dependent on what mm. may be going on with the virus. But we we anxiously await that news. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It's coming, though. <laughs> we we feel strongly that it is. Well, it'll be really, really exciting if we can take none but the brave into the tour era and we are able to discuss shows. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, discussing a full length East Street band show is, will be much more fun than discussing three or four songs done at a, at a benefit in, in the city. In New York City, <laughs> that's for sure. So, and let's move on to our new archive. Now, I, I will point out to people that we have already discussed the Coliseum shows in detail. We actually did an entire episode, season two, episode seven, with St- our buddies Stan Goldstein and Lowell Kern. So if you want to hear a much broader discussion about those shows, check out that episode if you haven't heard it. Yeah, but it was- what did you think of the bootleg? Well, it's not a bootleg. It's an official release. <laughs> well, it's an official archive. I, I still think of them as official bootlegs. In fact, Man. that's how I logged them into iTunes. Okay, see, I, I don't look at them that way. I look at them as official releases. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's Obviously, it's not that much different than the, than the 29th, which they released two and a half years ago. Uh, and some would say that uh, it's not even different than the 31st. But I haven't listened to those shows in a while, and... It was great to to hear the show in its entirety and in this quality. Steve Van Zant really really shines on this one, uh, not just his vocals, but also his guitar playing. His on I think it was Stolen Car. He's just so perfectly framed in in in, in the right channel, and it's just it's just beautiful. And it's it's not it doesn't sound as good as No Nukes, but it's not that kind of a release either. And but it for what it is, it sounds tremendous. How did you think it sounded compared to the 29th and 31st? Um, you know what? I'd be honest, I haven't done a comparison. So, I, I thought it was pretty similar myself. Okay, well, that's I'd imagine imagine it would. It's from the same same batch of tapes. Now um, these shows always had that fairly unique sound, whether it's because <laughs> of the temperature in the building, which there's been stories about the piano being out of tune continuously because of it was freezing cold and, and the piano was being stored outside. The venue didn't allow it to stay in the building. It's it's just so weird to me that they that they had to move the piano out and nothing else, or maybe maybe they had to move all the instruments out and then, then it just sat in a truck in the parking lot. <laughs> that just sounds so weird. I'm sorry. Well, the other one would be the drums. I don't know if that got moved out because those are really well, and I guess the organ. Those are the three that would really be fixed positions. Obviously, the guitars get moved in and out, and I'm sure Gary's bass. So, but it, there's always been a unique sound, as I said, to these shows, and 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 I think all three shows sound consistent. And it, it, it's a great listen, as you said. Uh, the I actually found the Prove It All Night, which has like a a unique intro and 
is, is carried over from the river. I, I thought that was really interesting. And it was placed in the set in a somewhat unusual position, the right. second to last song. Right, because Badlands basically was the the non-holiday opener. Right. And he did – I was looking at set list from 1980, and when he opened the show with Badlands, which really wasn't that often, Prove It took its position right before Thunder Road. So that was interesting. The second set is good. It's just a quality show now, as right. you were well, saying. If, it's, I'm we, sorry, go ahead. we got to talk about the second set. we got to talk about Because the Night and that three-minute guitar solo. <laughs> well, that and that's interesting. And it's interesting because, of course, that solo was removed from the live album. <laughs> Which makes no sense whatsoever. Because after, after hearing it in full, perfect quality, it makes, makes no sense. I don't know. The maybe live box to... would have been better <laughs> with that solo in there. Maybe they wanted to make it more compact. I don't know. Uh, it, very weird. And, and there had been some talk about that because... <laughs> On Twitter, someone had been interacting with us and and asking about some of the edits on the live album, and they were they asked specifically about the because of night, and I was like, you know, I don't remember off the top of my head, but we're probably going to get that as an archive fairly soon. You'll be able to compare it, and, and, and now they can. There you go. There you go. Now there were some tracking questionable tracking decisions made on this one. The entire intro to Backstreets is tacked on to the end of You Can Look, and that just makes no sense whatsoever. And then the um, the intro to to Badlands, the that I guess the rave up that they that they often did, especially when it started a show, that's tacked on to the end of Merry Christmas, baby. And so the so the Badland track doesn't start until the till Bruce's count in, and that's just frustrating. It's there's no need for that. That's 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 a mistake. They they screwed that one up. The Backstreets is really weird because that intro is part of the song. I, I don't know how you would conclude that isn't a part of the song. Oh, I agree with you 100 percent. It just it just made no sense. And it's going to be frustrating for someone who wants to, say, put it in their, oh, I don't know, workout shuffle mix and have to go into their audio editor and say, OK, let me get the three minutes from of the intro that from you can look and tag, paste it into the into the Backstreet track and then create a whole new whole new song there. Um, same with Badlands. Now, looking ahead a little bit, any insight into whether there's going to be a Christmas release? I have no insight whatsoever on that. Just just hoping, just based on uh, past experiences. I think we've basically gotten one, or not basically, we have gotten one every year. I guess you can kind of call the, the Winterland releases is both of them, the, the regular release and the holiday release on the same day. Uh, you know, I'm still always hoping for the carousel. Give us ten songs, you know, six of which I don't think have ever been performed live outside of the carousel, and you know, let's 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 get that. <laughs> I'm all for that. I mean, other than that, I gotta I, every year. I, I guess CW Post from from '75, where uh, Santa Claus, the official Santa Claus uh, release is 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 from, but and every year I'm wrong. Well, and considering we just got no nukes, we just got a river show, it seems like maybe it wouldn't be a Born to Run show, but let's see what happens. Hey, maybe we'll get a Born to Run album show from 2009. That could be interesting. That would be interesting. Cleveland. Cleveland. Let's get <laughs> Hello, Cleveland. That back in your arms. Wow. Oh, God. And that was a strong album performance as well. And that's the that was always a concern about those Born to Run shows uh, from that fall is you know how good Clarence was Clarence playing, and he had some off nights, unfortunately. 
but when he was on, it was it was something special. And I thought I thought he was on in Cleveland. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. All right, so let's move on to our topic tonight, and we're going to be taking a look at the ghost of Tom Joad LP. Uh, uh, pretty different from No Nukes in the <laughs> archive show we were just talking about, but it, we did just pass the anniversary of the release of this show, which came out in November of 1995, and, and we thought it would be fun to take a look at, so that's what we're going to do. And, of course, we're going to start with the first track, the title track, The Ghost of Tom Joad. You have any thoughts on this one? Well, the whole album is basically a return to to writing outside of himself. Uh, he he had spent uh, from obviously from Tunnel of Love, Lucky Town, Human Touch. They were all basically relationship songs about you know, you know, written from his his own perspective what's what's going on with his life and and now he he was looking outward again and so. Uh, and the ghost of Tom Joad, the song just kind of sets sets up the rest of the album, looking about looking at people who don't have a fair shake, who are part of the new underclasses, as as was in that book, the the journey to nowhere, and and everyone. I mean, I think Bruce even mentioned this in an interview that was in the Brian Hyatt book about this is his return to cinematic songwriting, and and that's that's definitely the case here, and of course. The Ghost of Tom Joad is basically an, an homage to to the movie Grapes of Wrath. Yes, John Ford's film. I, I will say, and we're going to get into the musicality of this record. Joad is to me one of the three standout tracks on on mm-hmm. this on this album. And the, he was playing with a band that we've discussed this before. Was Gary on bass, Marty Rifkin on steel guitar, Danny on organ. Susie was there, and then Gary Malabar was on drums because Max was unavailable. And there was this interesting dichotomy going on, which we've also discussed before, about how they were playing during the day, which really is a different set of material, which we generally refer to as the Western swing material. And then at night, they would turn down the lights and and they would record what became the ghost of Tom Joad. And and you're right, the, the album is very cinematic and... I think it lives very much 
in the moment. And Bruce even made that point to Hyatt, uh, looking at Brian's book, that he felt like the album was made at the very moment the music was made. They never did much to it after these sessions concluded. But the the one thing I'll say is that it, it even though he's writing outside himself, to me, and I think Brian makes this point as well, he's definitely still somewhat looking in because he's asking questions that seems to be trying to reconcile his own place in the world with what's going on. And that, of course, is by this point in 1995, he is an incredibly wealthy man living in a world where there's a lot of poverty and a lot of the problems that he's describing on this record. What, do you agree with that? Oh, I, absolutely. He was, as I said, he was looking outside of himself, but you're right. He was also kind of saying, what can I do? What is my place to, to, to talk about these people, about, about these people who are, we're not in my financial situation who who are living day to day, living meal to meal. And I thought he did a great job of of inhabiting the, these characters and and telling their stories in a very humanizing and personal way. Yes. And, and, and Jode itself is really a standout track. Now, we know, of course, it is really registered as both an acoustic song and also as an incredible East Street Band rock arrangement highlighted by the Times Tom Morello has guested on the track. And. I just really love the scene that Bruce presents in the final verse here when Tom is telling his mother he's going to stand for all those oppressed. And that, of course, is right out of John Ford's movie. And, I, and I, it's also right out of the book, I believe. But he really he really places it in a in a way that I find particularly interesting and particularly interesting in the way the song is arranged. I'm not sure as we get into the other songs, the other songs is successful in that regard. Well, well, this one kind of sets the table. And as I said, and I think that when you look in their eyes, you'll see someone, someone fighting for them, someone who was going to bat for them. And, and that's, and in this situation, Bruce has, Bruce has done a lot. He, he, on the tour, on the subsequent tour, he gave a lot of money to a lot of community-based organizations who were providing direct services he did uh, to, to, to these people who, who, he, who he sang about on this album. And that's what, if that's what he can do, that's, that's what he'll do. And, and you brought up Journey to Nowhere. This, of course, is, I believe, the only Bruce Springsteen record to come with a bibliography. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, pretty, a pretty extensive one, too. <laughs> Yes, he did a lot of reading and a lot of research, and, and he really adds color to the songs using what he found. And a, a, as we move forward here, should we move on to Straight Time? Sure. Uh, this song, again, is it's very cinematic. And coincidentally, or perhaps not coincidentally, there was a film also with this title. Uh, one of the things listening to the record today uh, that I found about this song is that it reminded me a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Shut Out the Light and the small details and 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 how intricate it was. And and it's the same thing here. I think it's very much in the same mode of writing as as that song. But here, musically, I I, I think it's a little bit different. What do you think? Well, it's very sparse. And there's, yes. I mean, there's very little musical uh, underlay at all. Um, but that allows the the storytelling and, and the details you i mean you really you really nailed it about you know uh mary watching it watching him from the corner of her eyes and 
and then of course the the line about sip a beer and and 15 inches or of hacksaw drop to the floor uh whatever or whatever the lyric is i always forget that one but as you said those details make the song yeah and they that's what makes it very cinematic for me this i can i can see this in a film even if even if it's only you know three and a half minutes long well, even for in the first verse, when he's, he says he got out of prison, he walked the clean and narrow trying to stay out and stay alive. I mean, that is just so stark and tells you exactly how this character is approaching life and the challenges they deal with every day. And, and, and I think that that's excellent. Now, this song, for me, musically, it's sparse and, and it doesn't have a lot of musicality, but it works it works for me. And, and, and this is a song that I like. The first time I heard this record... I think, especially as as I obviously started from the beginning, I, I was I was really into some of these songs. And then as we got into the heart of the record, as I think we're going to discuss in a little while, I felt like the songs were maybe too much. <laughs> they were they were too in the area of of telling you a story. It was like almost like reading a new story as well, opposed yeah. to listening to a song. Yeah, well, so, yeah, but, I mean, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to yeah. that. Yeah, but, but, I, I, but I, I don't feel that that's the case here with Straight Time. No, I think it balances the the sparse lyrics and the storytelling with even the sparser musical accompaniment. Um, I, I'll, I'll agree with that. Right, and of course, it, to me, it contains one of the one of his greatest lines that that I actually use on a pretty pretty frequent basis. About you, you can get used to anything sooner or later; it just becomes your life. Right, that's so, incredibly powerful. I, Oh man, I I use that line all the time with with especially with my wife and and such about you know you feel like it's it's oh my god I can't imagine commuting into the city every day or can't imagine driving an hour to work every day. Well, you know, you get used to anything. Just sooner or later, just becomes your life, and that's what you do. Yeah, and just that really is the line of the song. I think. Yeah, I, I and I I and I get it. I mean, he's talking about prison. Um, First, it feels like you're going to die, but you get used to anything. You have no choice. I mean, <laughs> you either die or you get used to it, literally. And I think it applies to the next song, Highway 29, which to me is about falling prey to temptation. He's tempted by this woman. This is a pretty classic film noir. <laughs> and, you know, in the genre of film noir, there's always a femme fatale. And, and that's certainly who the narrator of this song meets in, in the opening verse when he's slipping the shoe on her. Right. And I, I, I'm not familiar with a lot of film noir, but uh, in this one, I, in this song, I mean, he realizes that he tries to say, no, this woman made me do it. But then but then, no, he had it in him for a long time. And it's it finally it finally came out. And as Bruce said on the tour, self-knowledge is very expensive, especially because it comes after. It's especially when it comes just a little bit too late. And again, here it's all in the details. Even the first line, I slipped on her shoe. She was a perfect size seven. You, you know, you're, it, it, there's an intimacy to it that's really mm-hmm. amazing. And, and that may explain why this song is so sparse musically. Now, I don't know. And we're going to talk about the Joe tour at another time. I think we have to acknowledge on all these songs that there was a difference between the record and when he was presenting them live on that stage. And and I felt like this song was a lot more effective live. I I think the writing is, is very good, 
but it just it, it it it's it's very sparse and and not a lot of musicality to it. Do you uh, agree? I mean, well, you're gonna say that about almost every song on this album. <laughs> well, and we're gonna as we said, we're gonna get to that. I, I have, as you know, I have issues with some of the songs on on this album. Uh, there's some tremendous work here, and and I think we're still in the mode. The, the question is, what was he trying to accomplish? And obviously, he's done many interviews about that. We can talk a little about what he has said and what we think his motivation was. You know, in part, this record clearly was tearing down the last 10 years. I think <laughs> this was the final piece to tearing mm -hmm. down the E Street Band of the Born in the USA era. And of course, after he went through the Jode period, he then returned back to to E Street, which probably is not a coincidence. Right. Well, I looked at it like I've said. I think I've said it before. The Tunnel of Love tour. He said, "Well, I'm going to move the guys around, add some horns." All right, that didn't do it. All right, I'm going to drop the E Street band. I'm going to play with some new guys. No, that didn't do it. All right, I'm going to get rid of everyone, and I'm going to do this entire thing solo. And that seemed to that seemed to have worked. He, Going back to there's a line in Straight Time, got out of prison back in '86. Do you think that year is coincidental there, or that's, I never actually, I you know, that's really a great point. I never thought about that. Yeah, my, my my friend Chris pointed that out to me one time, and I'm like, hmm, that's uh, I see it there. I see it there, and uh, I, mean, I think more like he went into prison in in '85, or from and from some from some point of view. But here's the question, and I guess we'll talk about it more as we proceed. Did he go to an extreme? And I think many fans would say, yes, he did. Now, you and I, we whatever issues we have with this record, you and I both loved the tour that followed. And we yes. and think it was just positively brilliant. And, and I stand by that 25 plus years later, as hard <laughs> as it is to believe. Mm-hmm. But did he go too extreme, you know, and 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 maybe that is what led him back to East Street. Now, the other thing, and we have discussed this in our mid-90s episodes, we haven't brought up tonight. Of course, this followed right after the East Street reunion of greatest hits and the performance at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame opening, where a lot of fans were expecting him to go back to East Street immediately. And then just a couple of months later... He announces this record, which I don't think a lot of people saw coming, and and this is what resulted. It threw a lot of people for a loop. Well, 1995 was a it was a very strange year for for for, for Mr. Springsteen. I mean, he started off with 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 the greatest hits with the East Street Band in the studio. Um, he had a bunch of he played with Melissa Melissa Etheridge. He played with Soul Asylum. Um, then he did the Sony Studios with the E Street Band, which only added to the to that to the hopes of, of, of that kind of reunion. And and then he played with Grushecki. He did the American Babylon album and the yeah the October Assault. October Assault. And then it's like people were expecting him to tour with the band. There were rumors that they even had studio time booked. And and then all of a sudden he just says, you know what, I'm going by myself. And that's you could say he was searching for something. He was searching to find what he wanted to, to do next. And it's almost like he went through all of his options in one year. And then it was when he reached on the so a more or less solo album and then a solo tour. He's like, this is it. And it obviously continued for 18 months. So it really it was something that he really found a, a lot of joy and a lot of meaning in.
And one of the things I just realized we may have been remiss with that we didn't mention, of course, the title track, The Ghost of Tom Joad, was originally conceived for the Greatest Hit Sessions, was it not? Uh, it may have been conceived, but it wasn't recorded. Oh, it was not recorded It at was all. not recorded during the Greatest Hit Sessions. I think even in Brian's book, he, Bruce said that he was working on it for the band, but he just couldn't quite finish it, finish it in time. Uh, but it was never recorded in, during those January uh, 95 sessions. Okay. So let's move on to Youngstown, and and this is probably, I mean, this is a keeper to be sure. <laughs> in every form, uh, it was heavily influenced by uh, the book Journey to Nowhere, which uh, was I want to make sure I pronounce his name properly. Del Maharaj, photos by M- Michael Williamson. It's uh, it's a pretty amazing book, and and the song here, this this song really I think hits close to home. Of course, we know the stories of his father from Broadway and and everything now years later but this tells the story of post-industrial america and and what happened in these towns when when things changed and life shifted in the united states <laughs> yeah he he should have given co-writing credits to some of those guys in, in the book i mean he just took the lines about those big boys did what hitler couldn't do and i think there was a couple of others it's like I've never seen Bruce plagiarize like that, but maybe it's maybe when it's just one or two lines, it's it can be. Well, uh, well he did credit them. Uh, well, he, he credited. Well, he, he they're not credited on the song. You're right. Right. I mean, he credited the authors. I don't think he credited the people who actually uttered those lines. Was it Joe Marshall and Joe Marshall the third? Oh right. Um, yes. But this one is. I think this one is such a is a very universal song, as you said about it. It happened not only in Youngstown, but in all kinds of small towns and, and mill towns and factory towns across the United States and including, including his own in freehold. So it, this is more of a universal song than a lot of the others. And I think that's one of the reasons that it, that it really works well. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and one of the things you also have here is that it is not as sparse. I mean, this even on right. the record has, a bite to it on the backing track and, and, and the band he was playing with did a great job. And, and of course, as we know in, in every live format, however, he plays this song, it, it, it just works amazingly well. It, it's, it, it's, well, it's one of his top shelf songs to be sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Even on the, uh, on the Joe tour when he was doing it just by himself in a very low key, low key arrangement, it worked, it worked perfectly. I mean, oh. the, the performance of it from Youngstown, Ohio, when he actually played that town, you could hear a pin drop. And it was aired on CBS Good Morning or whatever the morning show was on CBS at the time. And it's definitely worth uh, take, taking a look on YouTube or, or however you can find it. One of the things that caught my eye in Brian's book, Marty Rifkin apparently kept the diary and had the exact date that Youngstown was recorded, June 16th, 1995. As we mentioned earlier, we know Bruce conceived of at least a title track during the Greatest Hit Sessions. Do we have any idea when this song was written? I have no idea, no. I was just wondering with all the stuff going on in 95, and that gives me a good chance to point out, for anyone who was new to our show, we did do an episode in season one. It was episode 15 called I'm Your Detail Man, Springsteen in 94 and 1995, where we covered these years and sort of the craziness that was going on in the various recording configurations he was doing. And it's it, it, it just interesting to f- try and figure out where everything falls during that period, because he really had a diverse amount of, <laughs> uh, of possible projects that were going on. 
Yeah, well, and as you said, the regarding the recording, it's we can only talk about what we know about, and, and there's there's a good chance that there's a lot of stuff we don't know about, at least yet. And so it's going to be interesting to kind of if we if we ever get the chance to listen to hear tracks too, uh, to, to we can piece more of what exactly what he was doing or trying to do at at that time. Yeah. So let's move on to Sinaloa Cowboys, the next track. This one is based on an L.A. Times article, and it's a very specific song written about characters that are not normally found on a Bruce Springsteen record, although it certainly fits in with his characters. This song is is about two brothers who are running methamphetamine, and... There, there's a lot of desperation here, and, and they're involved in the drug trade, I think, because of that desperation. You, you agree with that, right? I do. I do. But I think the, the real crux of the song is really the relationship between the two brothers that's, that's shown in that, in that last tender, tender scene about burying his brother with the $10,000 that they made. And even for a song that we're not exactly familiar with the uh, too much of the lyrical content, I think that that whole scene just it packs a punch there. It's really a song that I think for the majority of the fan base, it's it's outside their wheelhouse <laughs> to say the least. But what he was trying to do here, I think, was was educate a lot of us, and and in in that sense, it certainly works because there are a couple of songs coming up here with characters that he did tell me something I didn't already know. Now, the question is, are they great songs? That's a, that's a different issue. Well, these three songs basically make up, make up uh, the border suite, as he called it in, in the shows on, on the tour. They are kind of, they're all centered around the, around the line, around the, around the border between California and Mexico. And they tell stories about guys running meth, who lose their lives running meth, uh, border patrolmen and of course little kids as uh, as drug mules al- along the border and I, th- I think one of the reasons in addition to it to this not being to these characters not being as you said in the wheelhouse of most bruce fans is that these are very specific songs they tell very specific stories yes whereas in in the ghost of tom joad and in youngstown you have more of a general feel and certainly Going back to his greatest works in, in the 70s, certainly Darkness, you know, Badlands and Promised Land, those are pretty generalized. You can generalize them to almost, almost anybody's life or anybody can take it and say, that's written about me. And you could, that person could be a, you know, a mill worker or a lawyer. But in, in both cases, they're trying to, trying to fight the Badlands. But these stories are, are just very specific to the characters that I that I mentioned about guys guys running meth along the California border and border patrolmen and little kids in Balboa Park uh, as drug mules and I think that's one of the reasons that it, these really didn't really hit home with 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 Bruce fans. I, I think if they had been presented perhaps a little bit more interesting musically, it, he would have grabbed more fans. Now you could make the argument that of course the music is in total keeping with the story he's telling. And, and I think that's a fair argument. What you get here though, is uh, it, it's a very dense <laughs> song that requires a lot of attention. And as you, as you just aptly pointed out, Badlands, 
Promised Land, those songs really do cross boundaries. And here, it, you're, these are very, very specific characters. And, and, and I think that what he did was very, very admirable. And, and these songs did come alive much more on the stage. And that's totally understandable. First of all, most Springsteen songs become more <laughs> alive on the stage. That's true. But here on the record, it, to me, w this song in particular, the line I have different feelings about, Sinaloa, I feel, is very stilted on the record. Okay, well, the, I think the word that they used in, in, in Brian Hyatt's book is recitations. I mean, he is, is very close to, to spoken word here. Uh, as you said, with minimal, minimal acoustic guitar, and, and and it did come alive because it, Bruce on the tour he, he he set them up with more universal themes. He was talking about family and Sinaloa Cowboys, and the first the first line of family is, is 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 to protect them. And then in the line he talked about where talking about ethical choices, and then in Balboa Park talking about little kids. So I, I think in that way, yeah, you're right. It definitely hit home more on the tour. Now, The Line is another song based on a Rotella article. And, and here, I do think you get a little bit more of that universality because the title itself has, of course, a dual meaning. It, the line is the border. And the line is also, what would you do? <laughs> the personal line. So I, I think there's a, a moral ambiguity here that becomes much more universal and you can attach to pretty much any listener as opposed to Sinaloa Cowboys, don't you think? I do agree, but it but it's told in a very in a very specific way. And the way he talks about the the tape across her brother's chest. And that's not that's pretty specific. You know, and in that way I that that moral line doesn't really come out in a universal way, in my opinion. I, I see what you're saying. I, I do think, and perhaps you're right, because you know, all this time later, it's hard to separate your experience of listening to the record, especially trying to go back to the original listening and put yourself there and what was said on the tour. And he did open this song up with his intro quite a bit, as you were just pointing out. Yes, and I, I think that for a lot of these songs on, on the tour, he really talked about them he didn't. It was funny. He almost didn't set them up like he did in the past. It was almost like it was almost as if he was telling, telling what the song was going to be about, and almost too detailed in in some ways. But, um, but he did set set up like say Balboa Park about the when kids kids are the window into the grace of the world or or, or beauty of the world, and that did work really well. Well, and of course, I, well, maybe we're jumping a little out of sequence, but with Balboa Park, his references to children, he was a new father at the time. So yes. that also, of course, factors into it because his experience had changed. You know, again, he's bringing light to something that's a very important topic and certainly <laughs> not covered much by his previous music, not covered at all. And I don't think covered much by any other rock star either. No, not, not at all. And it's the way the, the way the kid ends up at the end of the song, bleeding internally uh, after getting hit by a car. That, that is, that's a pretty devastating, uh, pretty devastating imagery.
uh, picture that he paints and it, that works whether it whether you know about a whether you know a kid who's been in that situation or just or just have empathy for one one of the other things i was thinking about is and obviously this is an an odd correlation to make to bring born in the usa into it but i i think it applies and in terms of some of the simplicity of the musical arrangements here it may be so that you could really hear the words and force the listener to focus on them talking about how Brian's book says it's almost like a recitation because he had been through this experience where Born in the USA is a song also where in, in a way he's also trying to shed light on a situation. And that's the plight of the American Vietnam vet. But in that case, of course, as we know, and as we've discussed many, many times, the song was misinterpreted because of the chorus and, and, and the bombastic music behind it. So the, in this attempt to sort of maybe tear down from that period here did he take an approach i don't want anything getting in the way of these lyrics that i want my audience to listen to what do you think that's that's very possible i think um that's i think you're right actually he these are these are stories that were very important to him and he he wanted the he wanted people to hear it and by having the minimal uh, musical uh, accompaniment, he he succeeded. Now, there is only one problem with that, of course, because when you do this, <laughs> as opposed to Born in the USA, your audience is going to be one one thousandth, if not, <laughs> if not less than that. So it, it, it's an interesting choice that he makes here because uh, Bruce is one of the smartest artists you're ever going to come across he clearly had to know that much of his audience was going to be like, what is going on here? And, 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 and tune this out. So it, it, it is a very interesting choice it, at, for the artist. Do you go for, I, I've got a passion here to tell these stories and try and get it to the widest audience. Or do you sit there and go, okay, I understand my audience is not going to be as wide here but if a small number of people listen and listen carefully, that'll be good enough for me. And it seems I, like he went with that choice. Yes, I, I agree. He uh, he acknowledged that that sometimes his audience doesn't always go with him on on his various non East Street endeavors, and 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 he's okay with that. Um, he went smaller. I remember obviously seeing shows in theaters on that tour. Saw him at the Constitution Hall in D.C. and the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And but the people there, they were into it. They got it. They they, they sat. They they listened respectfully and appreciatively. And and I th and I think that that probably gave him as much joy or uh, fulfillment as you know playing one born in the USA to sixty thousand screaming fans. Well, and that is something that we should probably take into account. As we know, with all these records, a lot of it is to set up the eventual tour. And and as we're going to address one day in at least one episode, if not two, <laughs> that it is a very successful tour that took place in 1995, 1996, 1997. It, not only, of course, economically, and he did sell out the theaters, but artistically, it was it was a tour de force. Uh, that is, I think, a very fair thing to say. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, not to go too much in that direction, but he had he had a very specific story to tell at each one of those shows. And 
in some ways he f- felt like he was just ha- hammering his point home over and over and over again but but it worked you you walked out of the show with this with a feeling that you saw something special that you were you saw a show a focused show very different than what happened 10 years later yeah <laughs> that is for sure and the the focus was really remarkable and a testament that an artist and he did loosen up of course as he generally does on tours when we talk about this tour and we talk about december 1995 and and those shows the first 16 shows that were were played there that was as dark as you're ever going <laughs> to see any musician it, it was it was it was really quite unbelievable how dark those shows were yeah the, the lightest moments were when uh he was talking about a girl sticking his tongue in his mouth and uh, and, and some I guess some kind of adultery uh, adulterous relationship or or spouting uh, uh, cliches that we'll talk about in a, in a little bit uh, from a serial killer. <laughs> so it's uh yeah they were they were very dark. Well and and moving along on this record the next song is a relationship song it's Dry Lightning but it's again. Got a bit of a darker twist, I think, than some of his other relationship songs. Oh, just because she's a stripper? No, Dancing not just for other men a, or what? Well, no, not just because she's a stripper. I think there's a line in the song, ain't nobody can give nobody what they really need anyway. It, it's sort of a sense of hopelessness, no? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a very, yeah, this is a relationship song, and it's a very dark one because it really doesn't have any hope there. Most of his relationship songs from the previous three albums had some usually has some sign of hope or, or brightness but not in this one I, I love the mention of alvarado street here which is a street in los angeles alvarado at sunset is is right by dodger stadium that area of la has changed quite a bit in in recent years especially the last 10 15 years but when he was writing the song, the idea of going down the Alvarado Street, especially from where he lived, which we know was in the hills, that is, again, a, a, a very specific reference and tells you a lot about the character. Well, I always kind of took it that he was in like some podunk town in like Nevada or something. Oh, you think? That was always my take on it because you had the, ho- you had the horse kicking in the corral and, and the piss yellow sun. I don't know. Maybe he stole the street. You see, because I obviously knowing the street as well as I do. uh, I mean, he says I drive down to Alvarado Street where she danced to make ends meet. That's the type of place that would have been on Alvarado Street at the time. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm biased in that regard just because it is a, a street in Los Angeles. But is there other places where you could have horses in that little area? I think so. There really are quite a number of people who keep horses and stables within L.A. And also Griffith Park is right there. And, and there are horse stables there as well. Isn't that actually horse racing? No, no, no. Griffith Park is like the big central park of Los Angeles. You, uh, you, okay. you can go there's stables there. You can go riding. There's no organized racing there. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. OK. Well, still, I always kind of viewed it as you know, a guy had a couple of horses out back in, the, in, a, in a small corral. And. You know, and like I said, in the middle of nowhere, and you know they were they were kicking it, kicking in the corral, smelling rain was was one of my favorites, one of my favorite lines from that song. And and of course, he did set this one up by talking about being in the same relationship for thirty years, just with yeah, different. Yeah, you like men. that line. Love that line. It's just 
And it's as you as he revealed in the book, it was very very apt for him. He wasn't bullshitting on that one. And I think that those kind that kind of lyrics in this one do lend itself to being a little bit more universal than than those in Sinaloa Cowboys or Balboa Park. I agree with that. I think most of the time when he writes about relationships, even if it's a little bit darker, certainly it's going to be more universal than, you know, as we were mentioning in Sinaloa Cowboys, which is a song about two brothers cooking meth. Uh, There's more going on in that song, but that is what those characters do in their desperation. Here, you're, you're, you're getting a little bit different take even though it is it is pretty bleak and 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 the last lines of course he can't lose the memory of this woman and he still smells her scent and you know it's just dry lightning and she's on his mind and then the my favorite one of my favorites also is you get so sick of the fight and you lose your fear of the end but you but but then that leads into your your lines that you just mentioned about and you can't lose your memory of the sweet smell of your skin. I think that's pretty much everyone is there at some relationship at some point in their lives. <laughs> and, well, and it really does speak to your your fondness for his line about the same relationship for 30 years. It does speak to, I think, what he was going through and, it, it, you know, tying it to more recent stuff. When you watch the Western Stars film and you see the footage, there's that beautiful sequence at the end where. I think they were in Reno or something and, and, and Bruce is with Patty and, and, and the, the cameras on them. It's like home movies and, and right. they're all happy. And was that their honeymoon even? I think maybe. I think that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. And you think of what he said and what's in this song and, and, and everything that took place. And then you bring in those images from later in his career. And, and look, you, you have to, as a fan, you, you appreciate it on an artistic level, but also I think for him, you just got to be really happy for him <laughs> that everything that he described in this song and, and when he would introduce it on the tour and, and also wrote about in the book, you know, that he winds up on the other end. Yeah. Yeah. He made it, he did a lot of work to, to, to get to that point and, you know, God bless him. So let's move on to the new timer. Uh, this is about a person running away and and running away in a very specific sense on the rails, as I think we all know. Uh, and Bruce has talked about this many times about his running away. <laughs> and, and and in fact, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. I believe his biggest song is about running. <laughs> I believe you're right. Yeah, I believe so, you are right. Yeah. So this this again repeats themes, even though it's packaged much differently than Born to Run, of course, but this does repeat themes that he had looked at earlier in his career and and I think would look at again later in his career. Yeah, Uh, but this one, he's he's not leaving because, you know, he's on to the next city to to play music or something. He's He's off to try to find work that he can make money to support his family back home. And that's always a, that's always a sad reason to leave home. This song is 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 pretty dire. Uh, it it really I think this is where you get to the end of I, what we would call the second act in a in a movie script. And it, this album is very cinematic, as as we said. This is pretty much the low point. 
I would agree with that. Yes, I would agree with that because he's looking. A friend of his got killed. Uh, the old timer, because he's the new timer. His, his, so his, uh, his uh, tutor, his mentor was killed, and, and at the end of the song, he's looking for revenge, and that's always one of the, that's always one of the darkest uh, emotions in, in, in our existence. Now, now, what do you think about this song musically? It's certainly got a very unique sound for Bruce, and and the way it was played live was even. I think more specific, especially in 2005 when he played it on. What do you call that instrument again? He did new timer on the uh, auto harp. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Okay. The auto harp. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was interesting. Uh, and I think on the on the tour, it, I always felt like it was like two songs in one. Uh, like the first song, I mean, the first part of the song was when he was just describing, you know, hit, hitting the rails for the first time. But then, like, but then the second part of the song hits with he was writing and he, and he saw that house with the I forget the line about the about the seeing a family eating dinner or by the warmth of the light and that to me that's like the second part of the song and it's almost and it was a different song just the way he sang it was much different it just added more context to it or or more 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 levels. Yeah, this was a song. I, this is I think a very polarizing song for the fan base. I don't think it's a favorite of a lot of people. Uh, do you agree with that? Oh well, I don't think any of these any of these songs, except for across the border. Well, and I, yeah, we're gonna are. we're gonna get to across the border, but this one in particular, I think, was a, a bit of a lightning rod. Now, th- this one did not get played fairly often in 1995. It did wind up getting played, as I mentioned, more on the Devils and Dust tour uh, on that auto harp. Thank you for that, and. Uh, Always interesting when he pulled that out. Uh, it seemed like he was just going to see what he can do on the on the Devils and Dust tour, see how far he can push things. I always wanted to see that ukulele version of Man's Job, so I'm still waiting to hear that. Look, on the Joe tour, he played theaters. By the time we get to 2005, many of those shows are taking place in arenas, which is 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 a rather unique thing if you think about it. A guy on a on a stage alone playing an auto harp in an arena. <laughs> And yet it worked. I thought it worked anyway. I I always enjoyed when he, when he went to those extremes, to, to see what he could find. And I liked the, I liked the song a lot. To be, to be honest, I think it it's dark, but there is some but there is some hope in there. I always thought it, at least in the describing the the trackside house as I as I mentioned. This has never been one of my favorites. I I don't know it. It it seemed, and I I think on this one, I am colored more by the live performances. It always seems, my remembrance is that it took a really long time to get through this song when it was playing. Oh man, that's harsh. (laughs) Well, he, well, he, he would do it. He would, he would kind of combine it with the, with the other three border suite songs. So you got four songs in a row where it's, the lack of musical accompaniment is just so, you know, it's just so glaring, and you got the recitations of these four, basically four songs in a row, and I, I don't blame you for that. I see your point. <laughs> now, fortunately, it does take a turn on this record when we get to the next song, Across the Border, and this is a song much more about hope after things have bottomed out in the, in the new timer. This is, I think for diehard Bruce fans, probably 
Youngstown is as equally important as across the border, but certainly to the world at large across the border has had a much bigger impact than any other song on this record. It's been covered by a lot of people. I think Emma Lou Harris has done a version of the song, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, they, yeah, yes, she did. It, and it, it is just such a, it, it's really a beautiful song. And th- this is one, and uh, once again, you know, I mean, how many songs do we say this about? But this, Across the Border is one that really should be played more often. It would, uh, I think, be very welcome within the shows, regardless of the format he's playing in. And it it just it, it it's 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 lovely. I that's I think a word he would use. Yeah, I, you saw it. I mean, you saw it in two thousand three at both uh, the California shows. Yes, and I was lucky enough to be at the August thirtieth two thousand three show when Amy Luke Amy Lou Harris herself came out and they did a beautiful du- duet of it. So to me, this is one of the songs where it's more it's, it has more of a universal interpretation. Uh, and I think that's the reason why pe- why more people are drawn to this one than than so many others on this album. Well, the writing here is also it's very special. I mean, you look at that last verse for what are we without hope in our hearts? And we know this from many other songs. Bruce has the ability to just capture a feeling and a moment. And he's done it there. I mean, what what are we without hope in our hearts? We'd be nothing. Without hope, there's there's not much. That is true. If you think about some of the characters, even bringing this forward to Western Stars, which we talked about, the character getting up with his boots on and stuff. If you can't get up in the morning and and feel like some sense of hope, what would be the point of life? <laughs> and that's what he's capturing right here. Yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. And and he declares it. He says, I know love and fortune will be mine somewhere across the border. There's some place out there where things are going to get better. And and you're right about the universality of it, because really, what could be more universal than that? People wanting to believe that somewhere ahead of them, life is going to get better. Exactly. That And that's why this song, I think, shines, shines I think, even more than more than Youngstown and and the ghost of Tom Joad in a lot of ways, because it is, it is a, it's, it's a hopeful song. It, and the best Bruce songs have that hope. And someday we're going to get to that place where we, where we really, really want to go. And that's just across the border. Right. And that's been his theme almost his entire career. Well, uh, even moving forward into Gallison Bay, I mean, it strikes me like we were talking a little about Sinaloa Cowboys and, and, in terms of uh, being outside the scope of the usual Springsteen fan experience. And then of course that is the case with Sinaloa Cowboys, but, but it's the case here as well with Galveston Bay, which tells the tale of a Vietnamese fisherman. For some reason, I connected more to this song than I did to something like Sinaloa Cowboys. I think it's because of the internal debate that the character is going through. And, and as we get to the end of the song, this song actually has a universal feel to it because you can understand the desire for revenge and should you go through with it and and here is a character trying to be better and and he doesn't go through with it do, do you agree with that i do i do i think yeah he's showing that 
this person is very tempted to to indulge his his um, his revenge fantasy on, on by killing this guy and and who killed his friend. He but he decides not to, and that's that's his way of showing there's hope even in people who are, want to indulge those fantasies that they, they, they can hold off on it and 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 make this world hopefully not participate in the the continued destruction of our of our society <laughs> if well, i can make I, is that a little bit too too much but <laughs> no i don't i don't think so at all and in fact i i think we should talk a little about how relevant the song remains today Bruce talked in 1996 about the so- this song and about how people were being scapegoated in the country. And, and there's a line in the song about America for Americans. And, mm. and I mean, how chillingly relevant is that to 2021, where I, I think that is when Bruce wrote this in 1995, clearly it was an issue. I think it's always been an issue in this country. But it is a much starker issue today. The the tribalism, and 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 it's interesting. Just as an aside, I, I had a chance to see West Side Story last night. It makes me think of it as well. The new version by Spielberg, which is is brilliantly done. And and I walked out and I was like, that is also really a movie that speaks to the tribalism in the country right now. And and this song really captures. If this song was released today, we'd be like, oh yeah, oh totally. <laughs> Well, well, first of all, you got to go back. You said it was cinematic, and it was kind of based on a on a on a movie that was released in '85. It was, right. which was actually based on real events that happened a few years earlier after the Vietnam War. So, so yeah, it's very very cinematic song, and and yeah, it's it's a little too a uh, little too on the nose for today, and we need more people to put their knives away and and walk home and look at their sleeping daughter. Yeah, it, it really, to me, this is a song about stopping the cycle of violence. And, and that's what this man in the song ultimately says at the end, that I am going to be the one that stops the cycle of violence. And then he goes home and and, and, he, and, he, and he kisses his wife and goes on with his life, uh, you know, and, 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 and that really makes this character a hero. And not to not to talk about the Joe tour too much again, but. He talked about at one point he thought, you know, if I could write the right song, you know, peace in the Middle East. And but then I realized or then he realized rather that if he wrote the right song, if you can just reach one person who can make the world a better place in their own special way, then then that's really the point. Well, maybe that goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know, the difference between having a born in the USA and having something that you have to know as an artist is going to reach a much, much smaller audience than what your rock work is doing in Bruce's case. And, and, and maybe you're right. Maybe it was just about if I could tell this tale and then I'm going to go out on the road and tell these tales on stage. And if, if there's one person in the audience who I reach on that night, who then says to themselves, I'm going to be the one to stop the cycle of violence. I mean, that's that's a very lofty goal to to think that that might have been something he was aiming to do, but but I do think that it's here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you can't save everyone, but those who you do save, it's 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 it means the world to them. It's a really well written song, and, and and it does it really hits home, and and it leads into the 
final song, which again is is based on other material. In this case, the Jim Thompson novel, <laughs> The Killer Inside Me, pretty much lifting lines from from that novel. And uh, this is well, this is a song that has been much debated over the years. It's <laughs> would you? I, it, it's it's a it, in a way, it's a, like I'd say it's like half fun ditty and half a little sinister. But there's also a potential message, it appears, aimed at the fan base. I, I, I don't think know. Could you not take it that way? <laughs> I never. I think I remember people joking about that on the on the Lucky Town Digest at the time. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think we were at that time. The Internet, the fans on the Internet were that uh, that loud or had they had reached the ears of of Bruce or, or his people and. So I really didn't buy it that much. And, you know, to me, this is kind of a, just a goofy little, it's a goofy song with some dark under, under undertones. If you, if you know the, the history or the, where a lot of these things originate, you know, it's a bunch of cliches dog, you know, the sun don't slice, the sun doesn't shine on a sleeping dog's ass. And I really, I, I, I liked it. I thought it was a weird show ender. And I think it's kind of a, it's a very odd album closer here. But I think uh, I think Galveston ending on Galveston Bay, Galveston Bay might have been a little too dark, though. I, I don't know. It, I do tend to. I, I don't think he was sending it as a message to the fans, but I but I do think, considering how prominently it was played on the tour, just the idea that my best was never good enough. It, it seems a little tongue in cheek. I think oh, for yeah. sure. For sure. But there had to be a little element to that there. And I don't think it's necessarily about the internet. I, I think that he obviously, we know this. I mean, he said it in the book. Uh, we, he certainly exhibited it on the stage in, in 1992 and 93. I, I think he was a little stung by how human touch and lucky town were received by the fan base. Oh, okay. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. If, if you look at it that way, that, as you said, he wasn't greeted with open arms with those two albums and on, on that tour. And he certainly was very proud of those albums. And he's like, I, you know, my best, it's just not, wasn't good enough for you guys, huh? <laughs> well, I think there's also an element of it, especially here as it falls in the mid nineties before the East street revival, as you, you perfectly stated it at the top of the show when he was trying to tear down what had occurred in 84, 85, he went to the tunnel tour and moved people around. And then he got rid of the band and here he got rid of everything except him and his guitar. It, it does seem like it was possibly on his mind that it, it, he was thinking to himself, you know, you only like me in this one configuration, which is with this band that I'm not playing with anymore. And you know, it, it seems rather clear that he did actually feel that. You, you agree, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. And yeah, and that way it's, yeah, he didn't like being put in that box. He wanted to do, wanted to escape from that box. <laughs> I think he mentioned that in the Brian, in the Brian Hyatt, Brian Hyatt book as well. So, and, and then, and, 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 and I was looking at Brian's book today. He says that he thinks perhaps this song is a condemnation on the minality that was going on in American discourse. If that was the case in 1995, I can't, 
can't even imagine what they would. Uh, oh God! What, what what Bruce would uh, how he would position the song today, but uh, that that I'm not sure about. At some point, maybe we'll get Brian back on. He can he can tell us a little bit more about his theory on that. <laughs> works for me that'd be that'd be cool to talk about get a couple more albums yeah we have a couple more albums that we can talk to him about and get his get his uh opinions on so well and at some point he may have to update his book i hope so i hope so let's get another let's get tracks two out out and then he'll come join us <laughs> well that as we know would be music to our ears <laughs> on all fronts yes overall where, where do you place this in the springsteen canon but I always feel like I have to kind of uh, have different areas of the Springsteen canon. Uh, certainly the classic E Street and, and then non-E Street rock and then more solo stuff. And I think this is the best. I know I kind of like it more than Nebraska. Maybe it was because I was. Oh, that's Joe, that's interesting. When Jode came out, I, you know, I was following Bruce very closely by that point. Saw a lot of shows on the tour and he obviously didn't tour behind Nebraska. Uh, but I, I find this one a little bit more enjoyable to listen to. It's, I mean, it's kind of a hard word, weird word to, to use about this kind of album, but it's certainly better than uh, Devils and Dust. Oh, I completely agree. It's a better record than Devils and Dust. And as we know, Devils and Dust is in some ways made up of cast off from, <laughs> from this record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not put it in the Nebraska is a is a singular achievement and and I, I find this to be a, a a very different record than Nebraska even though some of the type of writing overlaps of course the title track in Nebraska does echo some of the songs here but yeah a lot I, of storytelling yes and it, this is an album I, I I think that will stand up over time I don't think it's ever going to be anyone's favorite but as we were discussing he i think he did it with a very specific purpose and in that regard i i I think it was very successful yes it it was successful and he he won a grammy for it so uh, that was i remember that was a very cool very cool win for him on on grammy night and with that i think that wraps up our discussion of the jode lp (laughs) this has been a pretty long episode now so we'll let people go hopefully they're still listening and we'll just end with our usual bit of business. None but the brave is a presentation of bull market entertainment and a part of evergreen podcasts. If you want to reach out to us, find us on Twitter at NBTB podcast and on the web at none, but the brave podcast.com. So for house Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.